Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. We cannot allow a company which is beholden to the Chinese Communist Party to have unregulated access to the data and the eyeballs and the brains of millions of Australians. Hello, I'm Paul Karp, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent. Today in the Podcave and in Melbourne, uh, I'm joined by the Liberal Senator James Patterson, who is the Shadow Minister for Cybersecurity and Countering Foreign Interference. Thanks for coming, James. G'day, Paul. Thanks for having me. It's been a big week of politics, uh, although Parliament hasn't been sitting. On Saturday, uh, the Aston by-election was run and won by the Labor Party. The Liberals met in Canberra on Wednesday to determine their position uh, on The Voice. Uh, but you're fresh from the airport and no doubt very jet-lagged. So uh, maybe we should start by you telling us where, where you've been and what you've been up to this week. Yes, literally very fresh from the airport. Paul just landed this morning uh, from the United States where I've been for the last week or so on a AUKUS defence industry delegation, a bipartisan delegation with a member of the government, a member of the opposition and a number of Australian defence industry businesses that are looking to position themselves to take the best advantage possible of the AUKUS agreement. And we had some really interesting meetings with Congress, with the Biden administration, with defence industry in the United States and some really important conversations about how we set up our systems to take advantage of it. And what did you uh, what did you learn about what AUKUS is going to mean for Australia in terms of uh, jobs and defence industry capability? Well, there's really two key takeaways from me from this trip, and this is the fifth trip I've made to the United States in the last 14 months, all of which has had an AUKUS theme. And what's come very clear to me is two things. One, we need a plan to overcome the regulatory barriers, particularly in the United States, that currently stand in the way to the successful delivery of AUKUS. Australia and the UK also have those regulatory barriers, but the ones in the US are the most significant, and the United States is the location for most of the intellectual property and the most exquisite technology technology that we will potentially all benefit from under AUKUS. And under things like the information sharing uh, security provisions that they have, the intellectual property protections they have, and in particular, the arms control regulations that they have, sometimes you'll hear called ITAR, uh, all of those really are not fit for purpose for AUKUS. If they stay in place in the same way they have over the last 30 years, then each individual item of AUKUS, particularly under the second pillar of AUKUS, will have real barriers to success. But the second main takeaway is the nuclear submarines in some ways will take care of themselves. There's such a massive project, there's such massive momentum behind them, it's one big thing. It will 
will certainly require a lot of effort, but it's, it's, you can see with logical pathway for it. All of the technologies under pillar two, the hypersonics and counter hypersonics, the cyber elements, the quad, sorry, the quantum elements, the artificial intelligence, all of those elements will not take care of themselves. They're going to require really careful stewardship, particularly through those regulatory obstacles that they face. And as a country, I think we need to be ruthless about prioritizing which among those technologies under pillar two are the urgent priorities that we want to get done straight away and which of which of them are longer term and will bear fruit over time because otherwise uh, we're going to be biting off more than we can chew and we're going to really struggle to deliver the capability we need and is there any pushback in the in the US system uh, against taking those regulatory barriers off that would allow us access to to, to that full suite of technology in the second round? There's no pushback from a basis of first principles. There's just a lack of consensus about what the best pathway is. You know, the US political system is the, one of the most complex political systems in the world. Power is obviously very widely dispersed between the executive branch, the legislative branch and the judiciary, and then even within the executive branch between the political appointees at the top and the career uh, bureaucrats who serve in the middle. And there is no consensus between those groups as to whether we need, for example, legislative reform, an AUKUS bill that, that kind of carves away the path for for all of these things, or whether we can make do with the existing system and granting case-by-case exemptions and executive orders from the president and other mechanisms like that. And my fear is in the absence of that consensus and the absence of Australia having a clear plan and a clear ask from the Americans, we want you to do this, that nothing specific will happen. And that's a risk of being a real uh, obstacle to the success of the program. And still on AUKUS, but turning to the Australian side, how, how do you think the debate is going over here? Because uh, Labor seems, you know, rock solid behind it uh, and behind Anthony Albanese. Josh Wilson's the only current MP who's dissented. But then outside Parliament, you've got a lot of unions, former Labor ministers and, and the former Prime Minister Paul Keating marshalling against it. Do, do you think that the consensus is going to be there, uh, both for the, you know, decades-long submarine acquisition and, and for the, the other components? Of the of the AUKUS plan. I think the first thing to say is that um, we're a liberal democracy and people are entitled to their dissenting views. If they don't think AUKUS is a good idea, they're perfectly within their rights to argue their case and try and persuade people. But as someone who is a supporter of AUKUS and, in fact, thinks it's uh, existential to our survival as a liberal democracy, um, I am concerned that over the multi-decades it will take to deliver this, that groups like that will eat away at the consensus. I think your assessment is right. I think today, as it stands, the overwhelming majority of Labor MPs uh, in the government are supportive. Obviously, the coalition is supportive. Uh, but over time, particularly as the costs begin to, to come, as the bill becomes due and difficult choices have to be made to prioritise this spending over other worthy spending goals that will come up, uh, that there have been some difficult choices to make. And I'm, I'm, I'm not certain, unless we do the work now to make the case and explain the rationale very clearly to the public, that that support will always be there. We can't take it for granted. It has to be argued for. And I think it's it's not sufficient, in my view, for the government to just kind of dismiss Paul Keating and others out of hand and not actually engage with their arguments and explain why they're wrong. Uh, now, you're one of the biggest China hawks in Parliament. Uh, my colleague Daniel Hurst uh, and I wanted to ask, there was a school of thought uh, during the really low points of Australia's relationship with China that said that, you know, a change in tone might be possible, but without changes in policies on the Australian side, we're not really going to be able to improve the relationship. But since the Albanese government was elected, you know, Anthony Albanese, Richard Miles, Penny Wong, Don Farrell, they've all met their counterparts and there are 
are trade talks to remove those barriers on on the Chinese end uh, that are ramping up. Do you think the uh, assessment that a change in tone couldn't change the relationship has proved wrong? Countries um, set their foreign policy according to their national interest and their perception of their national interest can change over time. I think it's very clear over the last few years that China's attempt to economically coerce Australia and to isolate us on the international stage has backfired. It's actually done enormous harm to China's standing in the world and it had the opposite of the intended effect that they hoped it would. It locked us into the policy settings that they were objecting to and rather than sending a message to the rest of the world that you should not be like Australia because this could happen to you, the lesson that most other countries in the world took was um, we we should take the steps now we need to safeguard our sovereignty like Australia has and, and have followed our lead. So why has China changed its perspective and its approach to Australia after a change of government? I think it was clear to them even before the change of government that this strategy was not working. And what the change of government provided to them was a convenient off-ramp. They were able to say, now that we've got a new Australian government and a different attitude, we can change our approach to Australia. But of course, China doesn't just have a bilateral relationship with Australia, it's got bilateral relationships with hundreds of other countries. And the best way we can assess whether or not there's been a big change uh, and whether it's due to us or it's due to them, is to look at those bilateral relationships. And at the same time as they're trying to turn down tensions with Australia, they're trying to turn down tensions across the world with a lot of their other partners, with Europe, uh, with countries in the region. Um, They've clearly decided to change tact. Having said that, um, I don't think this is a fundamental change of strategy from the Chinese government. I don't think its objectives have changed. I think their tactics have just changed. I think they still seek to be uh, the dominant regional and probably ultimately global hegemon and that our policies have to be set uh, with that in mind, and we shouldn't get either too discouraged by bad relations in the short term or too encouraged by improvements in the relations in the short term because that fundamental trajectory is still the same. And this week, the Albanese government announced a a ban on TikTok on government devices. Uh, What is the risk uh, there? And, you know, do you think that measure goes far enough? I really welcome this decision by the Albanese government. It is later than most of our other allies have acted and it is a long time after I first asked them to, but I give them credit for doing it because it's important that it happen. Um, the principal risk that they're trying to guard against by banning it from the work devices of public servants is an espionage risk. Uh, the app collects a lot of information on its users and presents a vulnerability to any user who's using it. But obviously, If you're a public servant and if on your device you have other sensitive information, then the risk to you is particularly acute. And so it was a very sensible move to get it off uh, all public servants' uh, devices. And I think you'll notice that there's some limited circumstances where exemptions can be granted, but a whole series of conditions that come when those exemptions are granted. And I think that's the most illustrative thing about this ban. One of the um, conditions that applies if you are allowed to have it on your device is that you're device must be securely stored away from all other devices. Now, that um, speaks to the depth of concern that our security agencies have about this app. Now, a few things flow from that. If it's so dangerous that it shouldn't be on the device of any public servant, what about the millions of Australians who also have it and the risk that they're also exposed to? I I think we have to look very closely at at what should happen next. But my starting point is we cannot allow a company, which is beholden to the Chinese Communist Party, to have unregulated access to the data and the eyeballs and the brains of millions of Australians. And that's why a lot of other countries are looking at this too, principally the United States. And I had some discussions uh, with administration and officials and Congress about this last week. And I, I think, you know, United States is going to move forward um, on one of two pathways. They're either going to seek to force 
TikTok to be divested from ByteDance to sever that link with the Chinese Communist Party, or if that can't be done, I think they're ultimately going to ban it because they regard the risk as so unacceptable. And Australia has to be part of that conversation. We have to make sure if America can solve this problem for their users, that we are protected by that solution as well and that we are not carved out from it. So do, so will we get we get our own uh, TikTok equivalent app that's equally as engaging but without the nasty edges? Well, I mean, if you listen to the kind of current employees of TikTok when they talk about it, they basically say that they're functionally independent from ByteDance anyway. I'm not sure that's actually true or is borne out by evidence. But if that is the case, then presumably it could operate as a standalone entity. It could be sold by ByteDance to a non-Chinese owner, and that would sever that legal and control link that currently exists that really makes it trivially easy for the Chinese Communist Party to direct uh, how the platform operates, uh, including to use it potentially as a platform or a vector for disinformation into our political system. Now, you're a former chair of the Parliamentary Joint uh, Committee on Intelligence and Security, and at a time, obviously, when when your side was in government, uh, were you pushing for measures like the ban on certain cameras in government buildings and and TikTok on on government devices hard enough? Was your side of politics doing enough on those questions? We did a lot. Um, We were the first country in the world to ban Huawei. We passed a whole series of legislation to bolster our cybersecurity, to protect us uh, against foreign interference, to protect us against espionage. I don't think anyone could say uh, the government was, you know, not moving quickly on lots of different fronts. But the scope of the problem is so broad, it is so encompassing that uh, it's not, certainly wasn't mission accomplished uh, in May last year when we finished government. There are certainly things that still need to be done. And uh, now as my role as a shadow minister, I've got a a different, you know, position in the political system and I can submit hundreds of questions on notice to government departments to work out that they have high vision and Dawa cameras or that they have TikTok on their phones. And we thank you for that. That's important work. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what senators exist for. Um, and, and to bring these issues to public attention and public concern and, and to get action on it. And I'm very pleased that the Albanese government responded when I identified those cameras being so widespread in federal governments that they said they would remove them. Um, unfortunately, all Chinese headquartered technology companies pose a degree of risk depending on the way in which they harness and collect data and store it. Uh, And so we have to look across the board at exposure to all of them, not just one. Do you have concerns about data harvesting by other social media apps? I know uh, TikTok is seen as a different kettle of fish uh, because, as you mentioned, China as an authoritarian government um, might exercise control over ByteDance. But in in general, do you think that Australian social media users are too complacent uh, about data harvesting and the risk from social media apps? Yeah, I certainly am concerned about other social media apps too, not just ones that are headquartered in authoritarian countries, although obviously they pose a unique risk. But certainly all all social media apps are in the business of collecting data on us so they can monetize that. And they monetize that in a range of different ways, but principally by trying to sell us advertising. And all of that involves a degree of risk. And probably a lot of Australians haven't contemplated individually, what does this mean for me? And will I be happy in five or 10 years time looking back at the intimate information that these applicants have collected on me. At least in the case of the American social media companies, they are headquartered in a liberal democracy that is subject to the rule of law, that has an independent judiciary, that there are privacy controls. Um, But that doesn't mean they don't pose a risk. And it also doesn't mean that there isn't a risk of foreign interference through those platforms because authoritarian states have proven very adept at weaponising Western social media platforms to do that. And one of the things I am concerned about, which I will explore through the Senate Select Committee on Foreign Interference through Social Media, is the way in which Twitter, under its 
new ownership has kind of turned back a lot of the controls that it had on uh, foreign interference and disinformation. Um, there was an article today that said that um, the Twitter had stopped the practice of identifying state-affiliated entities on the platform. So previously, for example, a Chinese or Russian state-affiliated entity had to be labelled as such so that users could identify it. Well, there's an article suggesting today that um, because of the job cuts and the, and the scale back at Twitter, they're not doing that anymore. And that's really concerning because that does make the risk of foreign interference uh, much higher. Did that come up in your US trip? Is the, is the US government also concerned that Twitter's new ownership is, is seeing it um, to take its hands away from the wheel in combating foreign interference? There's a very, very hot debate in the United States about all social media apps, and it is a very partisan debate. Uh, people from different sides of the aisle have very different perspectives on what the problem of social media is and what the solutions to social media is. There's certainly um, some on the right who feel like they're being um, victimised and silenced on the platforms. Uh, there are others on on the left who are more concerned about uh, their um, control from a kind of corporate point of view, from their from antitrust legislation. They think these entities are too, too big and too powerful from that point of view. Um, so there is a very active debate, um, but there, there is, again, no consensus on how to solve that. And, and most of the bills that have been put to Congress over the last few years have died a quiet death because of that absence of consensus. And it's very past, hard to pass the US Senate in particular without that consensus. So they're certainly looking at regulation, but a far-reaching kind of, you know, holistic change. I think it's going to be a long way off. Mm. And what more can we do in Australia to counter foreign interference through social media? Well, that's exactly what the Senate committee is going to be exploring um, in a couple of weeks' time, and we have our first public hearings on this. Uh, one is we have to deal with the, the, the risk of the authoritarian headquartered platforms, not just TikTok, but WeChat is another example where up to a million Australians are believed to be on that, and it is an environment which is highly permissive to disinformation, uh, where you can um, get kind of you know direct to your phone the Chinese state's perspective on oh, the Russian war in Ukraine and every other thing uh, without any kind of uh, caveats or filters or perspective or balancing uh, out of that. And that is a concern, particularly for, a, for diaspora communities that can be kind of targeted by that very deliberately. Um, so we have to look at measures to um, potentially require platforms to deal with uh, that foreign state disinformation. They have a very important role in our political system. They now have a very important role in our public debate and they are important sources of news and information about the world. And I don't think they can just take a hands-off attitude and no responsibility here because it does have an impact on our democracy. Hmm. And uh, you, you talked about foreign actors weaponising Western platforms. I know, uh, you know, bots or foreign actors uh, try to seed division uh, during important national debates. Uh, do you think this is a problem that could rear its head during the voice referendum? Yes, I'm quite concerned that this will happen in the voice referendum. In Canada, they've recently been having a very big debate about uh, Chinese foreign interference. And as part of that, leaked intelligence reports have found their way to the media. And one of those reports described the Chinese government's objectives in intervening in the Canadian election. And a quote was attributed to a Chinese official that we like it when Western parties fight amongst each other. And their apparent objective was not just the re-election of the Trudeau government, but the re-election of the Trudeau government in minority. They didn't want it to be a strong government. And that, I think, is hugely illustrative. I don't think the Chinese Communist Party or the Russian government or anyone else for that matter has a strong view about the merits of the yes or no case in the upcoming referendum, but they will see it as an opportunity potentially to exacerbate and drive existing divisions within our society. And social media is a very 
cheap and easy way for them to safely do that from a distance. It's com- almost completely deniable. It's almost completely cost-free and, uh, and, and, so, and they've proved very adept at doing it in the past in other countries. So we do have to be very cautious about this and I'm particularly concerned that the absence of an official yes or no case means that there won't be an authoritative source of information on either side of the case that a tech platform can point to when there are allegations of disinformation. It'd be much better if there was an official case that can be um, you know, relied upon as being that authoritative source. But in the Albanese government's design of this campaign being a community campaign, there are going to be hundreds, if not thousands of voices, none of which will be clearly authoritative, and that is a weakness. Now, you did mention that we'd banned TikTok on government devices later than our allies. Uh, Peter Dutton also had some criticisms of the timing and Stuart Robert linked it almost directly to the uh, waiting for the other side of the Aston by-election. Do you think Labor slow-pedalled on that in order to not get Chinese-Australians offside? I honestly don't know. Um, there were reports in the media for weeks and weeks and weeks leading up to the decision saying that it was imminent and journalists from a number of different outlets wrote articles saying the government is about to ban TikTok, um, but they held off and they did announce it um, after the Aston by-election. I don't know if that was the relevant thing that they were waiting for or whether it was something else. Only the government can really explain that. Um, it, the important thing is that, is that it's now happened and that also that we take this the next step further, that we address the wider vulnerabilities that, that we're all exposed to. You're a Victorian senator. The Liberals took a backwards step in Victoria on Saturday when they lost Aston. It's a blue ribbon seat in eastern Melbourne and the first time in more than 100 years that a government's won a seat off the opposition at a by-election. What what do you think happened and what is the message that you uh, would take out of that for, for, for trying to improve the Liberals' electoral success moving forward? Um, I was always concerned that a by-election this early in the term would present risks for the Liberal Party. Um, We have just lost office not only federally but also obviously lost another state election in November last year. Our brand is not at a high point in Victoria and, by contrast, the Labor Party's brand is very strong. Uh, in Victoria. They are still very early in their new government. Um, The fears that some voters might have had when Anthony Albanese was opposition leader have not come to pass yet. And the government is, you know, presenting as a functional government in Canberra. I've certainly got criticisms of it, but uh, it hasn't been a disaster in the eyes of most voters. And so it was always going to be hard at this point of the electoral cycle to hold the seat. And so it's unfortunate that it occurred so early. Had it been in, in six months or even a year's time, I think we could have had a very different result. Um, But when you have a result like this, it's not just one factor. Clearly, timing is part of it, but equally significant, I think, is the Liberal brand. It it is not perceived well, uh, particularly in Melbourne and particularly with some challenging demographics for us who are growing in in their influence. Um, We have challenges with young voters. We have challenges with female voters. We have challenges with multicultural voters, all of whom are taking a a greater importance uh, in the electorate. And we have to find ways to connect with them and appeal to them. Um, to understand uh, how liberal values can be appealing to them and how we can package our policies to address their concerns. There are lots of things we need to do to address that, but for me at the top of the list is is housing affordability. Young people, my generation and below, uh, are very bleak about their prospects of home ownership. There was a poll in the um, Age and City Morning Herald only a few weeks ago that said that three quarters of young people never believe they're going to own a home. Uh, I think that's terrible for Australia um, and it's certainly not good for the Liberal Party either because we have always traditionally relied on on homeowners for being the bedrock of our support. And uh, certainly I met young voters at pre-poll in Aston who said, I have no hope for homeownership and I'm going to vote green because I think they'll deliver the best and most secure rental environment for me because I'm going to rent for my whole life. Um, we've got to change that uh, for them. We've got to give them the hope of homeownership. So 
Do you think the Liberal and National vote is in structural decline? Because in previous generations there was a tendency that as people got older their voting patterns uh, became more conservative and that doesn't seem to be happening for millennials. Is that a structural decline and is uh, falling home ownership rates the the main cause of that, the only cause of that? I think we've got a combination of both a cyclical decline and a structural decline and that's very bad when you have both of those things at once. You know, if the cycle's heading in your favour because of political dynamics, and even if the structural vote is going against you, you can still, you know, win elections. But if both you're in a structural decline and a cyclical decline, you've got real problems. And that's that's why we're having a challenge at the moment. Um, I, I think home ownership is the most important factor in that um, because one of the reasons why voters become older later in life is not because of some chemical ageing process in the brain that changes your perspective. It's because the experiences you have change your perspective. You have a different perspective on the world when you get married, when you have children, when you pay tax, when you get a mortgage, all of those things change your perspective on life. Um, And voters become more conservative when they have things to conserve. And and a home is the principal asset which most Australians try and conserve and it gives you that perspective. So if the average rate of uh, buying your first home used to be 25 and now 35, well, that's 10 years of voters that the Liberal Party has lost. So we really have to work to get that number back down again and give those people hope again. But I don't pretend that even if we solved that problem, we'd solve every problem. Um, Younger voters have divergent uh, values from the Liberal Party on a range of issues um, and we have to negotiate that within our party uh, to the extent to which we um, are able to uh, modernise and appeal to them. Uh, Simon Birmingham, a leading moderate uh, this week, said that uh, that you've got to avoid being perceived as the nasty or intolerant party. It reminded me of a contribution that Kelly O'Dwyer made uh, shortly after the 2018 uh, Victorian uh, election loss. You know, the Liberal Party risks being seen as, you know, the homophobic anti-women climate deniers. Is there that perception and what does the party need to do to, to counter it? I certainly think it's a perception, at least among some voters, at least among some young voters, um, who uh, regard the Liberal Party as kind of um, out of step with their worldview. And this is not an uncommon problem that hasn't been faced by other centre-right political parties in, in Western democracies. Certainly when David Cameron became leader of the Tories in the United Kingdom, one of his main priorities was to, you know, renovate and refashion the Conservative Party brand because it had become unpalatable, particularly to younger voters. And I don't actually think we need to junk our values and throw them away, but um, the, the the way in which we prosecute them, the tone in which we do so with, and the policies that we prioritise are critically important. And certainly if we get the tone wrong on things that are important to people's identity, uh, they're not really going to be much interested in hearing what our economic policies are either. One of the things David Cameron did was to give the conservative side of politics not just a credible but a very proactive uh, emissions reduction policy. Is that what the uh, is that what the coalition needs here in Australia? So certainly, environmental conservation is important to um, young voters, to Victorians, to a lot of the soft voters that I think we lost in in teal seats at the last election. Um, uh, I don't think they, the Liberal Party is ever going to win elections by being more aggressive on environmental policy than the Labor Party or the Greens. If that's your number one issue as a voter, um, you're not likely to be voting for the Liberal Party. But we also have to be credible on those issues um, because for other voters for whom the economy might be their number one issue, they also want us to be credible on those issues as well. So we can't afford to be completely out of step with your expectations, even if it's not their vote-defining issue. It's just one among many that they're concerned about. You, you mentioned uh, policies on home ownership as, as, a, as a big thing you can do to improve the vote. Speaking to a lot of your colleagues and, yeah, they want a sort of a policy-led recovery, um, but 
very few people suggesting that it, it, it would need a change of leader. Do you think Peter Dutton is the right person to deliver uh, to deliver these changes and to and to deliver fresh policy in those areas? Yeah, I strongly support Peter Dutton as leader. I admire him and I think he's a leader for the times that we're in, which are going to be very challenging, I think, for Australia geopolitically for the next decade or so, and and no one has better credentials on that than Peter. But he's also someone who was Peter Costello's assistant treasurer. He's very well placed to advance a positive economic agenda for the Liberal Party. And one of the things I think we failed to do prior to the last election federally was advance enough of a domestic economic reform agenda to excite voters and to give them choices between us and the Labor Party, particularly in those teal seats where they might have been looking to us for a tax reform agenda or an industrial relations reform agenda. And because we didn't provide them one, the only difference between us and our opponents was on on issues of climate and integrity and gender, which the teals uh, very effectively prosecuted their case on. Um, So I think it is important that we do that. And Peter has set a very clear expectation for his front bench that we do that, um, that we are going to be able to provide, you know, a well thought out series of policies that address the problems that Australians face in their lives that are credible and implementable. Mm, tax and IR. Uh, tax is usually popular if it's giving giving people their money back, but IR has often been considered the, the third rail uh, not to be touched by the, the conservative side. What, what sort of policies are you thinking there? Something for small small business or greater labour market flexibility? Or Yeah, well, look, industrial relations is not my area of policy responsibility, so I defer to our you know, relevant um, spokespeople on that. But I was just saying that generally at the last election, the only economic reform policy that we really offered was super for housing for young people. And other than that, really, the cupboard was too bare when it came to the economic reform agenda. And if you don't offer voters a choice, if you don't offer them a competing uh, agenda, well, then the election will be defined by other issues. It'll be defined by issues that your opponents choose uh, to define it on. And we allowed them to do that. And that was one of the reasons why I think we lost. Fair enough. You've been very generous ranging uh, across a number of policy areas. And uh, I think that's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining us. A big effort for coming uh, straight from the airport. Very appreciated. No worries. Thanks, Paul. The Canberra team will be back with another episode of Australian Politics next week. And in the meantime, happy Easter. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.